We're currently on week two of our series, The Endless Grind, and we're talking about work. And uh, not just employment, but uh, work in general, the act of accomplishing something, you know, whether it's finance reports or laundry. Um, what we want to discuss is what we do when work becomes frustrating or difficult or annoying or unfulfilling. Now, has anyone in the room ever found work to be frustrating, difficult, annoying, or unfulfilling? I thought maybe there'd be a few here. Um, and we want to talk about why it's sometimes difficult, frustrating, and annoying, and unfulfilling. So last week we discussed how work turned into toil. So it went from work to toil. And it, it's because of human greed and selfish desires and pride. It's rooted in this old Genesis story where God placed humans in a garden and gave them all the plants, you know, to eat. They could eat whatever they wanted. And of course, being able to eat everything wasn't good enough. So the one fruit that was off limits is the one that they go for, which is every five-year-old or adult I've ever met. And after this, the ground is cursed. God says, I curse the ground. And so then work becomes frustrating and difficult. That's what the Genesis story teaches us. But you could just as easily say that work becomes hard and frustrating and difficult and annoying because humans tend to be, still to this day, selfish, greedy, and prideful. We want more. We want more than we have. We want more for ourselves than maybe for others. We want more fame. We want more power. We want more meaning. Everything. More, more, more. I want more. And wanting more never satisfies. Because the more you want, the only thing you've really learned is how to want. And so then you just want more and it never ends. And that's certainly true for Solomon and Ecclesiastes. He's looked at all he had as king and power and money and success, and he found it meaningless. The book of Ecclesiastes in the Hebrew Bible is really the ranting of a teacher. That's how it starts. That's how it's introduced in Ecclesiastes verse one, chapter one. It's, it's attributed to Solomon. That's what it's attributed to. But it's, he uses this title teacher. And, uh, and it's a really interesting word. Um, that's how he refers to himself. That's how I'm going to refer to him the rest of the sermon. But it's an interesting word because the Hebrew word for teacher is kind of unique. It literally means the collector. Yeah. In this context, it means the collector of sentences, which is the fanciest way to ever refer to a writer. I am a collector of sentences, and I have gathered so many great ones, and you should read my collection of sentences. I like to write, and so that's, that's what I should call my next book, a collection of sentences. Yeah, no, it's great. What is it? Well, it's a whole bunch of great sentences. <laughs> And the idea is that some of them, you know, that's, that's, that's wisdom is really just a collection of sentences. It's not always a story. It's sometimes individual lines that mean, you know, just one thing. And uh, uh, so it, it, what he means is, is that he's a sage, someone who puts together deep thought with a lot of experience, and then he has something profound to say. And this person, the teacher, has something profound to say. And right from the start and throughout the book, he says it like this. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. All right, trigger warning. For this entire series, this book is depressing. And that's okay. I think it still has wisdom to offer. I still think it's holy and set apart. But just know that we'll be considering ideas and things that could trigger someone's depression if you struggle with depression. No shame there. I struggle with depression, mostly anxiety. I found that once I got my anxiety under control, depression snuck in. 
Now, I hope to mitigate that uh, feeling as best that I can, but I just want you to know. What I really hope, though, is that if you struggle with depression, that more than triggering it in this series, you'll find relief, knowing that you're not alone, and that God includes books in the Bible and teachers in the Bible that come across as potentially depressed. We can't say for sure. We don't know the state of someone's heart, but if you read the book, you'll be like, okay, something must be going on under the surface here. So this teacher wants to talk about what he finds meaningless. And, and this is what he, he says at the root of his meaningless, verse three, right from the start. Verse one, I'm the teacher. Verse two, everything's meaningless. Verse three, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? He starts the book with a cry of meaninglessness or absurdity. And then the first reason he gives is labor or toil. That's what this book is about, labor and toil. It's about the frustrations of work. So today we're going to look at what it says about work, starting with verse 4, where he writes out what frustrates him about work in this really kind of beautiful poem. So we're going to look at it starting with verse 3 and following. Here's what he says. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough seeing, or the ear, it's fill of hearing. See what he's saying here? He said people want more and more. They see more. They can never stop seeing what they want, and they go grab it, just like we're living in the garden still. Verse 9, what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Allergies are really bothering me. The teacher looks at the world, all of creation, and all he sees is the same thing over and over again. This one giant circle, you know, the rain falls on the mountains. The water turns into streams, eventually rivers. They find their way to the sea where they evaporate into the skies again, only to fall in the mountains, and they start over again and again. Do you remember the old science textbooks with diagrams like this? Do you guys remember one of these? Yeah? The water cycle. That's what he's, he's describing, the water cycle. The teacher, look, but here's the thing. I look at that, and I'm like, that's neat. The teacher looks at that, and he says, this is a metaphor, just a glimpse into the never-ending, repetitive, repeating toil of the earth. Driven by selfishness and greed and desires for fame, the eye never has enough of seeing, and it will never end. There's nothing new under the sun. He looks around, and the things just keep going like they always have. And he's frustrated that after all of his years of experience, remember, he's a sage. He, he has lots of experience, lots of years under his belt, and very little has changed. Everything in his life just keeps repeating over and over again. Reminds me of this meme I ran into, and you don't have to be a Star Wars fan to get it. We'll put it up here. Um, he says, "Me watching any new Star." Thanks so much. Me watching any new Star Wars. Wait. So this society keeps reverting back to fascism, no matter how many times the good guys win. That's ridiculous. Me in 2022. Oh. You can insert any topic you want here. 
whatever hot topic you want. World hunger. We funded millions of dollars in world hunger relief. Guess what? There's still world hunger. Human trafficking, modern-day slavery, still happening. Racism. We fought a civil war over this. You think we'd be on the other side? Nope. Still fighting racism. Gun violence. How many school shootings since Sandy Hook? You think we'd find a way to make them stop? Nope. When the teacher says there's nothing new under the sun, he's sharing that deep frustration we all have when we look at the world and we say, I thought things would be better by now. I thought things would be different. And the teacher yells out in all of his frustration, there's nothing new under the sun. Like the rain that returns to the mountains only to end up in the sea is this endless struggle of justice and change and peace. And we try to make strides forward, but no matter how fast we run, We find that we're stuck on a hamster's wheel or a track, and the faster we run around the track, the quicker we get back to where we were. And that's what he's frustrated by. Nothing has changed. Nothing will change. It's all meaningless. Period. Hard stop. What's the point? Okay. (laughs) Want to take a second here? Gather our thoughts. Just a moment. The teacher is trying to make a point. And I'm going to let him make his point, by the way. But I do want to offer the other side of the argument, just for clarity's sake. Here's what you need to know. Things have changed. Things can change. World hunger still exists, but it's way better than it used to be. Racism, yeah, still a problem, but there has been progress, and there will be progress still. Same with all the other things that you worry about that you feel are just repeating. It feels at times we're running in circles, but that's not the whole picture. The teacher argues that life happens in circles like this. I got a description here. This is what it feels like. It's the same thing happening over and over again. This is sometimes that's exactly what it feels like, and any historian will tell you the more you study history, the more it'll feel like this. But this is just what it feels like. In truth, it's not a circle as much as a spiral. This is reality. It feels like we're going in circles, but in really, we're moving up the stairs very slowly. Slower than we want, but slowly. Change is happening, and I believe that. That's why Galatians 6.9 says this. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Can't give up. We got to keep trying. We got to keep working. As one of the other great sages of our time once said, just keep swimming. I want you to imagine uh, this as a lifeline, this idea. You know what? This this, this guy's depressed. He's having a hard time. He's going to really lay it into you here in a little bit. But we have to remember that that's just that we're looking at the circle, and it feels like we're going in circles. But if we change our perspective, it's not as bad as we think. So we, we get to, that's a lifeline, something we could grab onto if you feel like you're you're, you're drowning in depression. There, there's hope. Don't give up. You got this. So that's the lifeline that I'm giving you, just to hold on to if you need it. Let's continue in Ecclesiastes. So back to the teacher. Here's where he's at. Here's where we left him. There's nothing new under the sun. We're all just running in circles. Nothing ever changes. Nothing gets better. It's depressing. And here's the worst of it. Okay, you ready? All the work you do to try and make things better, ultimately no one will care and no one will remember. Here's the climax of his opening poem. There's no remembrance of the people of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. I do have to just, it's not in my notes, but I do have to point out the irony that, that the teacher writes this and then we're reading about it thousands of years later, so this obviously doesn't apply to him, but... Uh, For most of us, 
In the ancient world, having people remember you was the one way you could beat death. It was the best thing you could ask for after death. The idea of eternal life was this, you know, not fully introduced idea. Even in the Hebrew Bible, it was hinted at, but it wasn't really elaborated on until the time of Jesus. So the one way you could have eternal life was for you to, for your life to be remembered. That's, that's, that's what you wanted, for there to be stories about you. You know, you want to be the hero that, that people tell stories about to future generations. That was the greatest honor you could hope for, a way for your life to extend beyond the grave. And the teacher says, here's the hard truth. No one will remember you because no one really remembers anyone. And no one cares what you've done and no one will appreciate it. And you put in all this work for what good? You're eventually going to die anyways and be forgotten. Welcome to church, everyone. Reminds me of this clip from the classic film, What About Bob? Any, any fans out there? Bill Murray is sharing a room with a son of his counselor, uh, and the boy is struggling with depression, existential depression, I'd guess. And uh, here, here's what he said. We got that clip. Bob? Yeah? Are you afraid of death? Yeah. Me too. There's no way out of it. You're going to die. I'm going to die. It's going to happen. What difference does it make if it's tomorrow or 80 years? Much sooner in your case. Do you know how fast time goes? I was six, like yesterday. Me too. I'm going to die. You are going to die. What else is there to be afraid of? Believe me, if I told you this was a comedy, we're all going to die. What else is there to be afraid of? And, And what will happen to everything we've accomplished for our entire lives when that time comes? A teacher wrestles with this. He's a deep thinker. People wrestle with this. He's not the first person to wrestle with this. All of us might wrestle with this at some point. He wrestles with this really big in uh, chapter 2, verses 17, starting in verse 17. He says, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. It's about the best reason for hating life, I would say. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because, and here's the reason, here's one of the reasons why he hates his life or hates work. I must leave them, all the things he toiled, I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart begins to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may not labor, for a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all their own, all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. So here's what he's saying. Chapter one, he says, first, everything's meaningless because nothing changes. Secondly, if anything does change, it won't last. Nothing changes, nothing lasts. It's depressing. But let's be honest. Have you ever worked on a project and passed it off to someone to see them throw all your hard work away? Isn't that kind of what he's talking about here? I passed it to church once many years ago. I've been doing this longer than it probably looks. 
I, I worked hard and good things happened. I was there for seven years, first as their youth pastor and then as their lead pastor. I put my blood, sweat, and tears into the work. Uh, we started all kinds of funds, ministries, good stuff. We were serving our neighbors. Uh, then I left that church to my next appointment. I was going to a church to figure out how to be a church planner. And uh, it's no fault of the next pastor. He's a good guy, I'm sure. Maybe it wasn't the right fit. A lot of it was probably because I had built most of that ministry around myself. And I'm not blaming myself. I was young. There's no judgment on anyone. Life happens. But watching from afar, within a year, everything we had built fell apart. Nope, no bad people here. I'm just saying that's what happened. And I have to be honest. I've felt at times what the teacher feels here. It really makes you question everything. Am I a good pastor or is it just a show? If I can't build something that lasts, is it worth building it at all? What if this happens again? And is it worth working so hard for something that, if it, that, that it will just simply fall apart as soon as you let go of it? And this feeling that you have to hold on to something in order to keep it alive, it, you know, I have to live my life with this clinched, fitched, unwilling to let go for the fear what will happen if I do. And in the end, I end up feeling like I have to keep holding on or the world will stop spending. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one who's felt that way. Work is frustrating because we work hard and not enough changes. And the little change we can carve out in the world reverts back to the way it was as soon as we let go. It's like we got this iron pole and we put all of our weight into bending and it's stuck into the ground. And it's like, it takes so much work to get it to bend and you put all this effort into it. And then as soon as you let go, it just straightens right back up. Doesn't last. And that is frustrating. And if you think about it too much, it's depressing. What if I told you that everything you do in your life will ultimately have little impact on making the world a better place and what little you are able to accomplish won't last and the world that you were born into will be very similar to the world you leave? Kind of horrible to think about, isn't it? Really not great. And yet that's exactly what the Bible is asking us to ponder. No, if I'm honest, I want to argue. I want, to, I want to get, you know, grab a hold of the teacher and say, hold on, man. I want to grab that lifeline, Galatians 6, 9. I, wait, wait, this is the only way to look at it. Change your perspective, man. Don't, do, don't grow weary of doing good, for in due time you'll reap a harvest. Galatians 6, 9, I'm claiming it and I'm naming it, and it's mine. We just got to keep swimming. But before you grab the lifeline, don't grab it yet. Sit with the question. Wait, there's a point to be made. And it's a worthwhile point, and you need it. So instead of arguing, just maybe what your, your disposition was, if you're like me, hold on now, sit with it. Instead of arguing or insisting that the teacher must be wrong or writing him off as someone who's just depressed, maybe some depressed, rich, powerful, spoiled brat, which is probably also true, still, let's let him make his case. Listen to his advice. Out of respect for a book, a book that's been declared holy and set apart and special by both the Hebrew and Christian faiths, let's hear him out. He has a solution to the turmoil. Here's what he says. Here is the solution to the turmoil. The next verse in chapter 2, verse 24, he says, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This, too, I see is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? This is his thesis, by the way. He says this five different times in the book. This is, a, this is his big takeaway. 
This is his big lesson. We're going to look at it in a couple more weeks, I'm sure. It'll come up probably every week. He says, given how absurd and depressing life is, the best you can do is try and enjoy the simple things. Eat, drink, and stop working long enough to be able to find satisfaction in the work you've already done. He says the only way to stop the cycle of selfishness and greed and the longing for more and more is to get off the wheel. To stop wanting more, to be content, to enjoy the simple things like eating and drinking and looking back at what you've done and finding satisfaction in it, which is only possible by the grace of God. Here's what I'm trying to say, and I've really struggled, really struggled, because there's this idea in this passage that I haven't quite been able to fully dig out, and so I'm going to do my absolute best, and I hope it'll be as clear, as encouraging as I hope it, as I want it to be. I'm going to try it like this. We take our work too seriously, but not quite that either. I think it's good to take our job seriously. We're, we're asked to do something. We should do our best every time as if we're working for the Lord. It's not that we take our jobs too seriously. It's almost like we take our own importance too seriously. We take ourselves too seriously. We believe the lie that if we stop, the world will stop spinning. Things will fall apart. We believe the lie that we can do anything if we just work hard enough. The good old American lie that is weaved into probably every fabric of our culture. We can do anything if we just work harder. You want to change the world? Work harder. You want to end gun violence? Work harder. You want to get rich? Work harder. You want to be happy? You better work harder. You got to hustle. You want to be successful? Grind away. We believe work is the way to change the world. And I'm here to tell you today, work is not how you change the world. There, I said it. We run on the hamster wheel of greed and we wonder why the world keeps spinning around it. The teacher isn't saying to stop working, by the way. He's asking us to have a conversation about what healthy work looks like. Work is necessary but it's not the reason we were placed on this earth. It's one of the reasons, but it's not the reason. And this is the test he gives, whether our relationship to work is healthy or unhealthy. And it's right here, two questions. First one, can you separate yourself from your work long enough to look back and appreciate what you've done? When's the last time you stopped and appreciated what you've done? Can you reach a stopping point in the day long enough to look back and you're like, Man, I killed it today. Second question. Can you stop working long enough to enjoy the simple things in life? I'm not talking about extravagant things in life. I mean, there's nothing wrong with those either, but the simple things in life, just eat, drink, be with people. We're starting to see people challenge this idea of the American work ethic. Young people are starting to push back against the endless grind. It's, it's captured well in some memes. There's probably a dozen of these, but I picked out three that I thought were particularly special. Put, put, put the first one up. It says, stop glamorizing the grind and start glamorizing whatever this is. <laughs> There's another one. It says the same thing. I don't know if this is somebody's hero that you want to aspire towards. There's one more I found. You can find more of these on Twitter. Stop glamorizing the hustle and start glamorizing whatever lifestyle this is. 
Someone recently shared an article from CNN. CNN, it was an opinion article, talked about this concept. The author was pushing back against the very popular idea of loving what you do, that uh, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And you know, businesses are really monopolizing on this idea. They're trying to make their workplace the ultimate place to work, you know, with all the perks so that you love what you do. Uh, but don't be mistaken, this uh, opinion article says, they are trying to make work fun so that you will work more. So work becomes your primary community so they can own all of your time, all of your energy, and thus shape all of your values. They want work to become your life. And she argues that the next generation, as we see in some of these memes, is pushing it back against this idea that work is necessary, but not my life. And I work so I can have a life. I don't uh, live so that I can work. Which isn't a new idea, by the way. Uh, there's, there's nothing new under the sun, as the teacher would say. And as she, ex uh, she explains it in this article, uh, back in the 1950s and 60s, most white-collar people considered work, quote, a sacrifice of time necessary to building a life outside of it. According to sociologist C. Wright Mills, it was in their families, communities, softball leagues, churches, temples, unions, and political clubs, and not work, where white-collar workers sought passion, love, and authenticity. Now, I'm just suggesting that this is the argument the teacher is trying to make when he says a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. Work shouldn't define you. That's a part of life. That's a necessary part of life. Even in paradise, you'll, you'll work. But even in paradise, if you remember Genesis chapter 1, God showed us that work is only good if it includes rest. If it includes time at the end of the day where you look back at what you did and say, wow, impressive, good job. Do you, do you remember that in the Genesis story? I mean, that's the example we're given pre-fall, before there's selfishness and greed. God works, looks at what was accomplished, and God kicks back, and he says, wow, I really like that. And the goal wasn't the work, I think, as much as the satisfaction. I put in some work today, and then enjoying your life afterwards. And this is important, because stopping your work long enough to enjoy a meal isn't just a way to think about work differently. It is interesting, though. I read, uh, this is not in my notes, but it's a fun fact. Uh, I read in France... Uh, this is just bonus, friends. In France, you can't eat your lunch at your desk. You have to eat it somewhere else. There's a labor law. Because, you know, if you're eating your lunch at your desk, then you're also working. And they're like, no, you, you get a lunch. And so you're not allowed to eat it at your desk. And I was like, that's a really fascinating law. And also, I think, kind of what we're talking about here today. So stopping work long enough to enjoy a meal isn't just about thinking about work differently. I'm going to suggest it's the best way to change the world. If you have any interest in changing the world, if you're like, man, this would be great if this was better. At least as Christians, stopping long enough to enjoy a meal is the method of changing the world that we've been given. Here's, here, I'll, I'll explain. When Jesus talked about changing the world, what were the stories he told? He told parables about big dinner tables <laughs> where the poor and the homeless were invited to come and enjoy a meal. 
He told stories of throwing feasts for the prodigal son who returned. He told stories of a neighbor who woke up in the middle of the night to help his friend, his other, the neighbor, show hospitality to a guest. And when Jesus walked the earth, how did he change the world? Didn't he gain a reputation for eating and drinking with sinners, tax collectors, and sex workers? And when he planned his departure from the earth and wanted to give his people you know, something to hold on to, to remember him by, what did he do? He offered them a meal. A meal. Oh, there really is nothing better than to eat and drink. You're not going to change the world through your work. We're going to change the world because of the people we invite to our table. And if there's something that you're wrestling with, something you wish was different in your community, in your neighborhood, in your life, one of the questions you can ask yourself is, who do I need to invite to my table? Who should I have over? If you're frustrated by the socioeconomic difference that plagues Columbus, Ohio, and many other cities where the rich and the poor don't hang out together, sure, go vote, join a club, do whatever else you want to do. But one of the things you need to ask as a Christian is, who should I be inviting to my table? It's like, well, I don't even know who, I don't, I don't know anyone who's homeless. Okay, well, that's actually the bigger problem, isn't it? One of the ways in which we're invited to change the table is thinking about who we invite to our table. Now, I'm sure you do a lot of important things at your work. I'm, I'm not trying to knock that. I, I applaud you. I'm sure you're all very important people. I think my work is important most days. Um, but it's possible that some of the best work we'll ever do in our life won't be for a paycheck or won't be because we, you know, the laundry or the dishes. In fact, I would argue setting the table, preparing a meal, inviting people to share in that meal is the most significant thing we can do with our lives. There's, as the teacher says, nothing better. You know, it's funny that I was uh, talking about this because I was preparing the sermon and I hadn't quite got to the conclusion, which is like, go eat food. Um, I was also planning our summer cookout. And so I was like, I wasn't going to announce it this week, but it just seems like that's appropriate. Coincidence or the Holy Spirit, however you want to look at it. Uh, so on, uh, on, on July, you got a slide for that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting my dates confused. July 9th is a Saturday uh, from 5 to 9. We're having a summer cookout. I'm going to be inviting my neighbors, and I'm inviting all of you. And I'll probably announce it too many times. You'll hear about this way too many times. That's how we do it. And, uh, but I hope that you'll come. We live in Franklinton. We've got a huge yard. We're going to have a bounce house. We're going to have, uh, I think some, someone's bringing cornhole. I'm going to grill uh, hot dogs and hamburgers, and uh, we'll have a fire pit. And you can bring a chair, and I'll have a few chairs, and it's going to be great. Um, and uh, I hope that you'll put it on your calendar. I know people travel a lot, so no pressure, but come by, and uh, we'll throw a party. But even more than that, um, that's, just, that's just what we're going to do. I, I, I don't know about you, but I just miss hanging out with people. That's why we did an event last night where we had an adults' night out, and it was great. We got to hang out with people. Um, but it's one thing to organize an event. Like, I was running that event. I'll run this event and you're kind of focused on the details. Um, I miss getting invited to other people's events. So no pressure, but you all need to start hosting events again. We went to the Gots for a graduation party for Thomas, and uh, that's when I realized this. I was like, it's just good to go out and be around people again after, what, going on three years where we didn't really do that? And so if you're like, I'm not sure what I should do with my life right now, works kind of blah or whatever, you should schedule a get-together. And you should invite your neighbors. You should invite your friends. You should come volunteer at Little Bottoms and meet some people. You can invite them as well. 
and make it happen. And if you want to invite me and Alyssa, I can't promise we'll be able to make it. I'm actually an introvert, friends. I don't even like going to parties. That's how desperate we are. Are there other introverts, other introverts in the room that are like, you know what, I don't even like going to parties, but I kind of want to go to parties now because it's been so long? That's, that's where we're at. That's how bad it has gotten. So I can't promise anything, but I just encourage you. This is one of the ways that we change the world, by being in community with each other. So let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the model in which you showed us, the way in which you operate in an upside-down kingdom where we often think about power and strength and wealth as the means of which we are going to change the world, but you invite us into humble relationship. You invite us to walk with one another, to eat with one another, to cry with one another, to sit with one another, to be with one another. We might be organized and the world might become a better place because of it. God, give us a heart for an open table, not just at church, but in our homes. Help us to overcome the fears that keep us from inviting certain kinds of people to our home. Oh God, help us overcome it. Help me overcome it. That we might truly be the people of God. Come and meet us. In your name we pray. Amen.